Welcome to Africa Insights, a podcast from New Lines magazine. I'm Kwangu Diwewe. In today's episode, we'll be diving into the rising tide of misogyny on Africa's social media and its connection to the alarming increase of femicide cases in Kenya and South Africa. We do advise audience discretion due to descriptions of violence and bodily harm. A recent brutal murder of a young Kenyan woman whose dismembered body was found at a short-term rental apartment in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, has sparked a public outcry. But it also uncovered disturbing misogyny on Kenya's social media platforms. Two weeks prior to the murder, a Kenyan socialite was also killed in a short-term rental apartment. And yet a barrage of online comments have continued to blame the women for their own deaths. The Manosphere, which is a diverse online space, that has been promoting masculinity, misogyny, and anti-feminism in the United States and Europe is now rapidly growing in Africa, particularly Kenya and South Africa, where gender-based violence is alarming. I spoke to Caroline Kimiyu, The Guardian's East Africa Global Development Correspondent based in Nairobi. Caroline has written widely about feminism, misogyny, and gender-based violence in Kenya. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Caroline, you've recently written about misogyny and manosphere in Kenya. Just walk me through how you became aware of it and decided to write about it. So I was actually working on, I was working on a completely different story with a source. And then I came across some research that they had done suggesting that networks of online men's communities, which they called the, the manosphere, um, that promoted sexist and misogynist views were essentially having impact um, on the public views, public discourse around women that they said were being overlooked or at least significantly underestimated. So they shared the research file with me and then, you know, that's kind of where, um, you know, I saw their mapping suggested that the impacts were confirmed by big data analytics and um, that essentially it was driving hateful sentiment and the backlash towards women. So, I mean, if any woman living in Kenya has grappled with um, or has faced sexism, inequality, um, but I was curious to see how this was playing out online as far as like, you know, the chicken and the egg scenario. Was it just um, daily offline sexism that's wearing its head um, or where these communities actually having, you know, driving impacts um, on women in real life. So that's when kind of I went down the rabbit hole of, you know, sites and pages that, you know, I found carried really just overwhelmingly negative messaging around women. If you're talking about slut shaming women and uh, messaging, kind of just like it could be tweets, um, it could be, uh, Reddit pages, just body shaming women or reinforcing views that, you know, that were problematic in some sense, saying, for instance, that coercive control over women um, is a way of maintaining, so, you know, social order or suggesting that women should not hold leadership positions. The list is, you know, kind of endless. Um, but, but yeah, it existed. This kind of material existed across the main social media platforms. So does this behavior online stem from incidents that happened or are being discussed in the public domain? Like, for instance, the recent incidents where two women were brutally murdered in what is being now dubbed the Airbnb murders. 
my goodness, <laughs> that was um, that, that was something else because part of you know, I, and there was like a whole BBC piece on it that you know that shed some light on the issue of like the online misogyny is is where we could see women are literally dying. People, you know, the, which led to a, you know kind of uproar and women kind of calling out for this to stop. And then on the other hand, you know, you would naturally expect that there would be, um, I forget that you would naturally expect anything. But on the other hand, there was backlash now coming from men who, you know, men or, you know, people who just generally held the views that women should do more to secure their safety or, you know, women should not have been in those situations. Or it also became a question of like how safe are Airbnbs or short-term rentals where these women were. Um, it, it was really quite diversionary. And, you know, that was part of the issue that played out. Um, you know, it becoming talk, you know, a talk about prostitution where the women that were that were killed essentially selling sex. But, you know, women's rights groups that I spoke with were against those narratives and essentially just saying that. It's problematic to kind of give this any public endorsement of sorts, but to see that playing out online. And this, this was a perfect example of where you could see the impact of, of um, you know, these online communities existing, which have continued to put, um, you know, troubling messaging out there. The, the fact of the matter is it was very apparent in terms of, um, how the conversations went in the wake of these women's deaths. Um, it was, you know, we've seen it in the, the media covered as well. The women's groups have called it out. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's the reality of how it played out in this recent episode. Caroline, you've been writing about misogyny, manosphere, femicide, but what are the challenges and obstacles that you face, particularly as a journalist and as a female? It's, um, you know, I mean, there's a whole host of challenges. I'm not going to lie. Um, so even when I decided to do the story on the manosphere, I mean, I think I had severely underestimated how much, um, how much it, it, it would involve. Like, essentially, when I got into it, it was more that, um, you know, I came across some research. It was very interesting. It was suggesting all the things that, I mentioned previously, and I decided to look into it. But then, you know, it was, I had sources literally drop out because they were fearful of, you know, um, any piece that would potentially name someone in, in the manosphere, um, you know, influence, you know, kind of, kind of area, because essentially there is a lot of backlash and it's very, personal attacks sometimes, you know, you can find people inundated with like death threats, um, you know, rape threats. And we, we see it play out, you know, repeatedly, we see one woman hang out to dry because of X, Y, Z reason. So covering these issues as a journalist, I learned, um, you know, it, it does come, it's, it's, it's not easy. And I think we need to think more within the journalist spaces about how women can do such kind of coverage safely because not only did sources drop out and like the fear was um, palpable, but also, you know, there are fundamental differences in terms of how this should be, be covered. Um, because, you know, you're seeing the, you're, you're seeing the reporter who's, you know, asking you for comment 
um, you know, facing uh, facing backlash in lifetime. It's not very encouraging for people who want to speak out. But at the same time, you know, um, you know, it's very difficult to do a story on its impact, the manosphere's impact on women, where only men are are willing to speak. Like you might have seen with my piece, it, it had you know predominantly male voices. So these are some of the things that um, you know I struggled with. How do you balance the need for exposing harmful ideologies with the potential risks of just amplifying them through media coverage? Honestly, I'm not sure that there's a perfect balance to be found. For, for me, it was ultimately very tricky and it was an area of um, a bit of you know, dis- discomfort and discontent with the sources themselves because you're finding people in the space of the research who are saying, literally, we know the modus operandi of these um, networks is to attack those that um, you know bring you know bring this issue bring this issue up and it's, it's you know very personal personalized attacks just like I said um, so there was those concerns not only for themselves but for me so I had to also think about the safety of the women that I would be involving in the story but at the same time um, I think two things can be true at the same time, that providing the coverage can amplify them to some point. But I also think that not doing so allows it to become even more, you know, insidious because people aren't, you know, wouldn't be able to necessarily make that link between how these kind of uh, spaces manifest offline, you know, toxic masculinity um, has been linked to violence against women in certain studies. And, you know, now just being able to see that conversation even starting to simmer to the surface has been very, not only rewarding for me as a journalist, but I think, you know, that is, you know, the unfortunate thing is that there does have to be some compromise because not addressing something won't won't make it disappear. So I did agree with the rights groups who say that, We've got to, you know, address and, and tackle this issue head on. Um, but but I also could understand the other perspective of not wanting to, to amplify these, these, um, these views. So in Kenya, do these attacks on social media translate to actual physical harm on the ground? I mean, femicide is undoubtedly a huge problem in the country. So that's that's the thing. I mean... And, and that's what I mean, that we need more Kenya-focused research um, and, and research that can be used publicly as well, drawing these links. Because the truth is that right now, if you're asking for tangible data, I mean, there are some analytics showing that, okay, um, you know, it's it's affecting public discourse, but is it, you know, having a direct impact on you know, violence, the kind of violence we're seeing now. Um, I think more research needs to be done. But yes, I mean, there are, you know, that's 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 the sense. That's the broad sense. Um, and especially, like I mentioned, violence being at its height in that 20 to 30 age group. You know, I was speaking to the group um, Femicide Count Kenya, who document the the number of femicides each year and they were saying that cases where they're talking about cases of strangling women being um, doused with um, you know fuel and then lit on fire it's it's gruesome gruesome deaths and we're seeing the worst of it especially this year and um, but but the thing is that 
we need to look at where is, you know, what are the age groups that are most affected? How is this playing out? And try to make more of a link so that it's not treated as a one-off incident. I think that's one of the main calls that I've seen in the recent um, spate of attacks. It's it's where um, the recent spate of deaths is, is where we're talking about, you know, women's groups are saying, let's call this by its name. Let's call it femicide. Have people understand what is femicide and also um, understand how is this playing out? Uh, as one source mentioned to me for a story I was doing on femicide, um, um, they were saying that um, essentially these things don't just happen. It's not a one-off incident. It's something usually, you know, usually it's where it plays off you know, it starts off as maybe violence. It starts off as maybe domestic abuse, and um, you know, and then eventually it leads to a death. So the call is, um, as I hear it, to listen more to women through the authorities to act earlier on um, in responding to some of these, you know, incidents. So, from your perspective, what are the key factors that contribute to the prevalence of femicide in Kenya? It's a loaded one. Um, I would say there is ultimately the deepest running current for me is that social normalization, that kind of like, you know, where it's, it happens and it's not condemned as actively as it should be. Um, where people say, you know, that's a private matter and, you know, why, why should we get involved or, you know, it's, it's it's not seen as the abuse that it is. And, you know, with systemic issues, it's just like um, with, with race and other ways of, um, you know, oppression, so to speak, um, they have to be seen as systemic issues. They've got to be seen within the broader, you know, broader picture of like, this is not just one incident. Why do we have, um, why do we have this reoccur every single time? Is it, you know, as well, it, it doesn't help that, um, you know, many times there isn't accountability for violence, gender-based violence um, in terms of the implementation. And, and you have people, including authorities, sometimes not taking it as seriously as it should be. So that's why the deepest running issue is the social normalization and um, the social consent for this to happen. And that's why, again, these online spaces that feed into that need to be looked at a little bit more closely. Caroline, thank you for your insights. Thank you very much, Kwangu. We now move to South Africa, a country that is infamously considered the rape capital of the world. According to a World Bank brief, the rate at which women are killed by intimate partners is five times higher than the global average. But just how prevalent is the manosphere in South Africa, a country that boasts of second place for spending the most time on social media in Africa? To discuss the complexity surrounding gender-based violence and toxic masculinity in South Africa, I'm joined by Rosie Motene. Rosie is a South African author and feminist who identifies as a Pan-African queer. Rosie, welcome to the podcast. It's only my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Rosa, let's start with you providing an overview of how toxic masculinity manifests itself in South Africa. What is its connection to gender-based violence? Well, I think before we even look at gender-based violence, if you look at our at, at our uh, history in terms of of um, how women have been seen, 
how women haven't been seen. If you look at our history in terms of apartheid and um, the discrimination against people because of their race and because of their sex. So with the toxic masculinity, which is always protected by um, policies, it's been protected by our judicial system, it has been ingrained in our society. We know that rape culture um, is, 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 a, is pushed through the misogyny and is pushed through patriarchal ideologies. And so automatically that then falls into the victim blaming. That then falls into when gender-based violence does happen on women or queer folk or gender non-conforming folk, um, there's always that, that, that biased attitude towards, towards the, the perpetrator and protecting the perpetrator and blaming the victim. Now, you've just mentioned South Africa's history of apartheid, which was systematic racism. But it's also a country that is still dealing with inequality and poverty. How does this contribute to the high rate of uh, GBV in the country? So with, with, with the inequalities, with uh, living conditions, with the inequalities of having adequate uh, health care, medical health care in our, in our societies, that also just adds to it. So from one stream, if you look from the queer point of view, the level of violence that is that the queer community have to go through, for instance, transgendered people. So the verbal, the verbal violence and the verbal discrimination that they get with just trying to get treatment at, 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 at our, at our public hospitals. Then if you just move into, to, to, to women or, um, other, other gay women, lesbian, and bisexual or queer women in getting adequate medical system, that's just another way of which they're also violated within our, within our healthcare um, 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 areas. Then if you look from a judicial point of view on how um, society sees and, and has coined what victims are supposed to look like, and so we've seen the high rate of, of murders within the black queer community, particularly within the black lesbian community, and why the rates of, 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 um, of and why cases haven't been opened and why those are, are, are dropping quite, quite, quite a lot. Uh, reason being, one of the reasons is that many people don't want to go report the crimes because of the secondary victimization that they will get at the police stations. And so all of these different factors, depending on who you are on the, on the so-called social totem pole, if you don't have access to the adequate legal system, which costs an absolute fortune to litigate in this country, costs an absolute fortune uh, to get the medical health care, to get the psychosocial support. Uh, psychology, decent psychology. If you want to go, if you want to go see a psychologist, if you don't have medical aid, it's starting between one thousand five hundred and three thousand rand per session. Now, if you're at the, if you, if you, if you're um, a low income earner, there's no way that you can even even begin to afford that type of of, of treatment and that type of support. And then looking at how the judicial system will then favour and support and protect. Um, the the perpetrators and even and even the enablers of the perpetrators. When we look at manosphere in South Africa, both online and offline, what does that space entail in the country? Okay, well, well, just like all all forms of misogyny, it's incredibly toxic. It's violent. Um, it is incredibly incredibly abusive. And so we've seen the rise of, of um, particularly this toxic masculinity online because younger and older feminists are even speaking up even more and they're not backing down. So when you listen and you go into these misogynistic podcasts or interviews or, or online discussions, one of the, 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 the talking points is that feminism um, isn't how it used to be. 
and, and the feminists today have moved away from feminist principles. Now, the fact that feminists from, from that are, that are operating in 2024 should be very different to the ones that were operating in the 1970s. Number one, because our, um, our, our, our demands and, and our, and our living and our living environments have obviously changed. But also, we've also shaken the boat because now they don't have that 100% control like they had, that they used to. So now people are being named, people are being believed, court cases have been open, although we don't get as much justice at the court system, but people are then getting to the point where their, 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 their pain is being heard, they're given those platforms. And, and, then, and, and now also because of social media, we have the receipts. So in order to try and tame the voices, they will then use and, and step into, into those, those spaces where they feel comfortable where they where they can use um their verbal abuse they have proximity to power so whether it is um hiring people to to start new to start new groups they also know that they're protected in certain um social media platforms uh you know 2 years ago um i was verbally attacked online and um, via my my twitter via my instagram via my facebook and i found it very interesting that the harshest attacks came through instagram and when i reported them i was told that it wasn't a violation of the community standards now some of these attacks stated you should be raped and murdered we're going to come and we're going to rape and we murder you so i don't know how that is not a violation of a community standard whereas on twitter it is a different story people will be blocked people with their their accounts will be taken down so that they know the, with within these 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 massage and toxic spaces, they know where to push the boundaries, they know where they're protected, and they know how to protect themselves and get around the law. Um, for instance, uh, two years ago, an alleged uh, uh, perpetrator, and there were many, many multiple allegations against this person, then went on to create a fake WhatsApp message um, stating that he's the person who accused him of these atrocious crimes had lied. Uh, when it all came out, obviously, you know, mud was on his face. But in the interim of that, one of our largest newspapers, selling newspapers, printed this so-called WhatsApp message. And, you know, it, it, in order to get a retraction and a small apology, which I think was at the back of the newspaper two weeks later, um, it had already gone out to millions and millions of viewers and listeners with this girl's um, um, a telephone number. So in terms of where it is at the moment, it's incredibly dangerous because of their proximity to power, because they know how to get around the justice system. They know how to, to infiltrate us um, and, and not really infiltrate us, but to try and tap into our resources, knowing that we don't operate um, off high budgets or high finances. Do you have any other examples that show the prevalence of manosphere in the digital space in South Africa? I mentioned it before of them knowing that they can get away with saying whatever, get away with lying. Uh, they can host um, spaces where the most horrific and vulgar language is used against people, um, verbally, physically, and, and, and in some cases, sexually threatening people, and yet they are then celebrated uh, through awards, they're celebrated by corporates, and then uh, aligning themselves with reputable other individuals within industries such as government, the medical fraternity, marketing, celebrity, um, and so not being held accountable for what their actions are or what they state on, on within the digital space. Let's look at the law in South Africa. Where does hate speech fall in regards to all of this abuse we're seeing? 
you know, our constitution is great on paper, but when it comes to when it comes to actually implementing justice and getting justice, it's a very very narrow road. It's very very difficult. It's incredibly expensive, um, and so on paper it looks great. And uh, hate hate speech and 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 we've seen a few we've seen a few cases where there have been um, justice in terms of hate speech, but in terms of of when somebody reports crimes such as rape, such as molestation, um, number one we've seen where people have gotten bail, their uh, 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 protection orders have been placed on them, and then two weeks later or a couple of days later, once they've been released on bail, they've gone and harassed the same person again, or if not killed them. Now, just take it back a little bit, um, back to the broader question of what fuels toxic masculinity in South Africa. In what ways do these cultural beliefs and norms contribute to it? Or how do they intersect with these ideologies that propagate within the manosphere? So that's one of the underlying problems that we do have is, is um, people will hide behind so-called culture and say, well, it's not the African way. Now, nowhere in our in our African heritage and culture does it say you're supposed to be hurting, beating up or hurting our wives, mothers, daughters um, and aunties. So people will hide behind those 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 cultures when it suits them. But then at the same time, they and they forget in the fact that certain um, traditions and cultures within South Africa are led by matriarchs. But they won't acknowledge that because it doesn't suit them. So when 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 the time is right or when the paper is right, then they will push that it's well, it's not the African way, and we need to handle it the African way, and and that a lot of these things have been brought in by the West. Um, but then when it doesn't suit them, then they then they totally forget about that. But are there any cultural aspects that you believe have played a role in shaping the toxic masculinity discourse in the country? There is another aspect of the broken family. And so the so-called perfect structure of the man being at the head of the household firstly speaks to their ignorance. It speaks to the hypocrisy because a lot of these spaces have spoken and have been honest that they grew up in households where the fathers were not present. And instead of putting the accountability on the man or the person that left the home, the, the blame is then put onto the feminists or put onto to the woman in the household for not keeping the family structure. And then there's that knowledge and, or not knowledge, but there's that narrative that they constantly push that uh, not everybody wants to be a feminist, which is perfectly fine, but also pushing, pushing the, 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 the incorrect information of what feminism is about. And deliberately moving away from the fact that it's about autonomy of our, of our bodies, equal opportunities, intersectionalism and understanding that some of us don't have a footing in the ground purely because of where we sit in the socioeconomic spectrum. And that if, if, a, if a person chooses to stay at home and, and be subservient, they should have that right just the same as if a person wants to go out and get a degree or wants to go out and get a job or doesn't want to have children, they should also have that right. So it's that specific and deliberate um, attempt at trying to change the narrative, bringing it back to the cultural um, aspect of what an African home is supposed to look like. 
Now, when we look at South Africa as the rainbow nation, it's made up of different races. But is it right to say that um, the gender-based violence largely affects the black community? I mean, they are the majority in the country. So in essence, is this really a black problem? I wouldn't say it's the black people that affect the most. It's it's we 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 do have a lot more, um, obviously a higher percentage of black people living in South Africa, also living below the poverty line. So uh, the physical abuse and the, the the level of abuse in with within within poorer communities is very different to the level of abuse that will happen in the behind the high rise walls in the affluent areas. So we have got the emotional abuse, we have got the financial abuse. Um, if you slightly educate you, you will know that if you're going to be beating up your wife. Um, a lot of perpetrators will then opt to to do it in a way where it is not visible. Um, and, and then obviously focusing on the emotional, the psychological and the financial abuse. So I wouldn't be able to say that it's predominantly black, but it might, it might be uh, because there are high numbers of black people living in South Africa. But I would definitely say that it is, it is definitely across the board, but there are different strains, there are different levels that abuse is happening that we, we don't see. And remember, with your, close, with your close proximity to power and money, you can hide a lot more, you can cover a lot more, you have connections to judges, to magistrates, courts, and so forth, so cases don't even happen. So even looking at our stats in South Africa, working within the activism space for the last 20 years, we know for a fact that our stats are way off because it's based on crimes that are actually open. What about the poorer economic areas? What about the rural areas? What about those high affluent areas that, that I spoke about or have high affluent families that have that close proximity to judicial systems where cases can disappear, where they will pay off and, and, and buy off or silence victims and survivors? Thank you, Rosie. No problem. It's my pleasure. And a special thank you also goes to Caroline Camillo. This week's podcast was produced by Patrick Hagen and hosted by me, Kwango Liwewe. For more in-depth discussion and analysis on Africa, visit our website at newlinesmag.com. Thanks for listening in.